0: Hi everyone, it's me, Sophia, and I've been looking forward to sharing this episode with you for a while because it's the first episode of the podcast with a more social tilt than the environmental tilt, and that'll be really interesting uh, for me and hopefully for you. So today, what we'll be talking about is Gandhi's approach to conflict resolution and how it can be applied to social justice today. So... Who, you might be wondering, will be enlightening us on this topic? None other than Dr. Mark Jurgensmeyer, a distinguished professor emeritus of Global Studies, Sociology, and affiliate of Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he was the founding director of the Global and International Studies Program and the Orphalea Center for Global and International Studies. He currently serves as the general editor of the Oxford University Press Handbooks of Religion Online, and his commentary on contemporary issues of global religion and politics appears in the Huffington Post, The Globalist, Religion Dispatches, The Eminent Frame, and Yale Global Online, and on BBC, CNN, and NPR News Media. And I am very honored to be talking to him, and I hope you find this conversation as cool and as eye-opening as I did. So... Without any more delay, I invite you to settle into your headphones, your car, your running shoes, or the most comfortable corner of your couch with a nice warm cup of tea, as we dive into Gandhian conflict resolution with none other than Dr. Mark Jurgensmeyer. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is a Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. So, thank you for so much for coming onto the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, today we're going to be talking about your work on Gandhi and conflict resolution. So I, I thought to start off, you can maybe just say a bit about what inspired you to write about Gandhi and nonviolence.
1: Well, I'm uh, thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. Uh, I look forward to the conversation. Y- you know, my I'm an academic. I'm a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Just recently retired, and all my uh, career, I've been interested in the interaction of religion and politics with particular focus on South Asia. So Gandhi was a a logical subject, but that's not how it began. It it all began in a very personal way when years ago, and I was just a graduate student, I went to India to help out with famine relief in the state of Bihar. There was a serious famine at the time. Uh, And I went went there to initially to help out the American agency of Care, uh, which was delivering food to people, but then I looked around and I saw that there was another group of Indians who were also delivering food, but in a much more interesting way, uh, because they organized food for work projects, not just giving out the food, but they would go into the village and they meet with the villagers and they would say, you know, we want to help out. We know you're desperately need food, but you also need improvements for this village and you also need to prepare for the future so that famine won't happen again. So you have to build dams to have ponds to hold water. You need to dig wells to be able to go deeply into the earth to bring up water. You need roads and schools. <laughs> so I said, we'll we'll pay you with food if you'll join together and, and do this work for your own village. And I thought, what a smart idea, <laughs> who are these people? So I found out they were Gandhians. So I left the American agency I was working with and I joined them. I was the only non-Indian to be a part of it. And I lived at the ashram of the leader, a man by the name of Jayaprakash Narayan, who was one of the, the great leaders of the Gandhian movement after after the, after the Gandhi died. Because there are really two big aspects of Gandhi. One. One is the conflict resolution. And the other is the Gandhian way of life. And they're both related. But it was the Gandhian way of life that I got to know through J.P. Narayan and living in his ashram in the state of Bihar and working for most of that year in in famine relief, helping him out and also helping to organize Indian students for famine relief. And there I discovered that the Gandhian methods are really more than simply a technique for conflict resolution, although it is that. Uh, but it's also a way of life. It's a way of, of looking at human interaction in a more holistic way and to try to overcome some of the things that, that separate us, especially in the modern world, in issues of capitalism. He had a whole a Gandhian economy that would be based on the village. He wanted to start locally rather than start from top down. His idea of change and improvement and really a different kind of life, a revolution, begins with yourself, begins with your family, begins with your community, of looking differently about the way in which you can work together and cooperate together. And that's, a, that's really in harmony with the idea of sustainable living uh, and why the whole Gandhian lifestyle is so important. But the conflict resolution aspect is an important part of that because, like his lifestyle recommendations, it aims at a holism of trying to restore a relationship, not just punishing the evildoers or or trying to conquer one side, you know, so one side wins and the other side loses. Gandhi was always trying to find a solution that both sides could ultimately accept. Well, that's real that's some extraordinary way to look at conflict isn't it
0: um i was saying that yeah
1: that's that's much better
0: (laughs) it was this it was this thing yeah yeah don't
1: use it don't use it
0: (laughs) um i was saying do you think that in a world where people are constantly on social media and filled with in in a world where they're surrounded by marketing and constantly needing uh, a dopamine rush do you think that this Gandhian way of life is still possible? Does it look different?
1: It, it not only possible, it's maybe needed, needed more now than ever mm-hmm. <laughs> as a kind of antidote to the way, to, to one thing, the way in which truth itself seems to be arbitrary, the whole idea of alternative truth. And you've been, you know, the whole misunderstanding that dominates the airways is the uh, disinformation attempts to try to mislead people into. It, you know, that that's the whole Gandhian approach and conflict resolution is to try to seek truth and to pierce through all of the different angles of vision, all the different ways that people try to portray truth, to find a core that you can really rely on. And, and so that's that's a very important aspect. And then the other part is to is to live gracefully, uh, to um you know, not let the world, let let the world tie you down. Try to emphasize the things that are important in life, which is relationships and meaning and, and, and living life fully in a way that's not just based on conquest and acquisition and getting more stuff <laughs> and, and beating your neighbor or beating your, your, your competitor. Uh, all of that is part of the Gandhian lifestyle, where he emphasized that any competitor should ultimately be thought of as a potential ally, somebody who can be your friend. And you look at the person you're opposing as a potential friend, then everything quickly looks different. I have to admit, in today's politics, there are a lot of people (laughs) that are politically opposed to my positions that, boy, I don't want to have anything to do with. But the obligation from a Gandhi point of view is to think of them potentially as your friend. And that yeah. puts, a whole, puts a whole different spin on it.
0: Yeah, it's so, it's so foreign to the way that politics is today. And I, I wonder if that's because it's sensationalized and because being friends with everyone doesn't make for interesting politics. But yeah, it's definitely very foreign to yeah. the world today. Um, mm. So j- I just want to check. I is this the right pronunciation um Satyagraha is that the right
1: pronunciation? Yeah s- satyagraha um, it, it's, so, a, it's a word it's a word actually that Gandhi invented uh, because uh, he was he had this uh, a movement in South Africa which is where uh, his is methods of conflict resolution were developed. It had a movement against the against the British against the uh, colonial regime. Uh, that would mass people together in in protest. And it was called passive resistance. And Gandhi didn't like that term at all. He says, there's nothing passive about it. This is very active. And he says, it's not really resistance, you know. And so he he had a contest in his magazine. name our movement. (laughs) People came up with different ideas. And the winning name actually came from a cousin of his, which then Gandhi tweaked a little bit and adapted. Uh, and it was a word that basically means truth force. It comes from two words, "satya," which is the Sanskrit and Hindi word for truth, based on the verb "sat" to, to be. Satya, real reality, real, not just what is better, <laughs> truth, more truthful, but what is really true. Like, you know, when you're truing a, in carpentry, trying to, you know, true a, a, a piece of uh, wood that you're putting up. So satya, and then agraha is, is cognate with the English word grasp, to hold on to. So it the idea is to, to get a sense of what is a truthful resolution and hold on to it. So that's satyagraha. It's a very interesting idea and it's yeah. ideas wrapped up, wrapped up in the word itself. So it's such a How,
0: how did Gandhi develop this? What, what led him to believe that this was the right approach?
1: He got in a fight. <laughs> he got in <laughs> and a big fight. <laughs> and, the, and the fight was with the, with the colonial government in South Africa, I mean, he went there just as a lawyer uh, to try to, uh, you know, make some money, and he did very well. You know, he was making a couple hundred thousand dollars by today's uh, standards, uh, so he, he was doing doing really well. But then, it, and he became a kind of a leader of the South Asian community, the Indian community in South Africa, which was was and still is a considerable part of the population. But they're kind of in between the. Black South Africans and the white South Africans, they call them the Coloreds, and, <laughs> but they were they were still not treated very well. <laughs> they were still treated like second class citizens, and that was the problem. So, in trying to pressure the government to change its attitude, they they had they mounted these protest movements against the against the government. That was that was his way of trying to think: how do you how do you how do you mount a resistance to a force that is much stronger than you? It has weapons, it has bullets, it has has police, as an army. And all you have is a whole bunch of people and moral force. When you think that, you know, the right is on your side. (laughs) And you think also that if there was a different way of interacting between the the whites and the coloreds and the blacks, everybody would be better off. So it was a solution, not just for the Indians, but also for the white colonialists and also for the black Africans in South Africa. As it turns out, modern South Africa, which is now finally has moved towards that kind of Gandhian vision, is I think most people agree better off. I mean, the society is better off and so Gandhi, Gandhi began to play with this idea and, and realized that you, you need masses of people. You need to have a kind of show of resolute, resolute strength in opposition to military strength, a different kind of strength, moral suasion. And he really was very good, uh, both in South Africa and in India, playing the international press to try to get the moral consciousness of the world on his side. So long before there was Ukraine and and the world, much of the world coming together to support Ukraine, there was the Indian independence movement in in India. And before that, of course, the movement in South Africa that Gandhi led. He left South Africa, went back to India when he was 40 years old, and then got involved in leading the uh, movement towards independence in India, trying to use some of these same methods. You know, of truth force so of rallying people in protest as a way of demonstrating moral strength on their side in opposition to weapons and brute force.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can I can see the, the clear link between uh, a lot of the the big wars and protesting that is going on. How can this?
2: Um,
0: how does this look in the life of an individual? So as individuals, we're not necessarily fighting against big military regimes and not even maybe necessarily physically being violent all the time or at all. Uh, Is there kind of an emotional nonviolent component to all this or is the Gandhian conflict resolution more just about physically restraining from violence?
1: No, it applies to any kind of conflict. In fact, Gandhi talked about Satyagraha in his own house, in his own household, Satyagraha between him and his wife, (laughs) where sometimes they would get in arguments and fights and disagreements, and they would have to use Satyagraha as a way of getting out of the dilemma. Mm -hmm. And so yeah you might say what does that mean <laughs> how do how do you use it in your personal personal life well the same way you would do it in you know in fighting for independence for a nation you try to look for a resolution that really is the best for both sides so when i wrote a little book about such agraha uh, which I, I think you you've read uh,
0: gandhi's book, way yes gandhi's
1: way yeah So I I start off talking about how the whole effort of Satyagraha has to switch the focus of a fight from persons to principles, what they're fighting for. So get away from the fact that two people are mad at each other and they're, let's (laughs) say, you know, you're in in college and your roommate is playing their stereo too loud and, and, you know.
0: Loaded the dishwasher the wrong way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, your first, maybe your first instinct is to punch them. <laughs> and the problem with punching somebody is that they're pretty likely to punch back. <laughs> and then you're going to punch back even harder. And then they're going to punch back even harder. And pretty soon you're on the floor punching each other like crazy. And yeah. you forgot what it was you were started to punch each other about. <laughs> you just gotten carried away with the punching. And that's the problem with fights. Mm -hmm. So Gandhi talks about violence as the breakdown of a fight. That's when it's no longer a useful fight. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Because it's a useful fight if instead of punching each other, you looked at what started the disagreement in the first place. Yeah. And try to find some resolution to that.
0: Yeah. You called them angles of vision, right? You said that there's... The real reason is is different angles of vision what is yeah, yeah, what is the real reason
1: for yeah you have that? to accept the fight you, you i mean this, this is the trick to it you, you you have to accept the fact that you're you don't possess all the truth you're not completely right if, if you did then you'd say well this guy you know they're, they're playing with the dishwasher and they're playing their music too loud. And, you know, they're just absolutely wrong, <laughs> you know. And then that's what motivates you to punch them out because you think they're stupid and they're idiots and they don't see they don't see the world the way you see it. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, nobody sees the world the way we see it. Everybody has a different angle of vision on the truth. I mean, what the guy who's playing the music too loud is, is is a music major and and is trying to appreciate, you know, the complexities of Beethoven and how he, he created his compositions. And it's really important for him to try to you know listen to it fully. I mean, he has maybe a reason for that, or or maybe it's a different reason. Maybe maybe his his you know his mate just left him and. And now he's feeling really sad and lonely, and he needs music to console him, you know, and, and heartbreak. The roommate,
0: playlist. <laughs>
1: yeah, the roommate isn't giving him any any empathy. So he's got to get it in his music. Well, if you found out that if you understood that. Maybe you could find a, a different way of resolving the situation so you could get what you want, which is quiet. And the other person could get what they want, and that's appreciation. Maybe end up buying them earbuds, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you can listen to music and blissful. So
0: so let's say that you're you're in the moment in that situation where your roommate is playing music really loudly, and you hate the music, and you're in a bad mood, and it was a bad day for you too. Yeah, you're not you're not feeling compassionate. What? would a Gandhian approach be in that situation where you don't even really you're not even really feeling it inside?
1: First of all, take a moment to cool off. <laughs> yeah maybe you know excuse me, take a walk around the block uh, you know, kind of try to put things in perspective and then you come back in and say could you turn the music down for a minute? I just want to talk to you for a second. Uh, you know okay, what is it? I just want to understand what why this is important to you, you know, because for me, I've had a hard day. It's important for me to have quiet, but I you know, I I know it for you, it's really important to have this music. I want to understand why. It's a lot. it's bad things going it happened, man. I don't want to talk about it. We'll talk about it. I, I, I want to know, I really do. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So so then maybe you get, then maybe you get into something really interesting, and you develop a whole different relationship to that roommate that you never developed before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, maybe you may realize that you had let him down. You hadn't been open to him. It hadn't been considered. You hadn't been empathetic. He didn't feel like he could share things with you. Mm-hmm. And and that was your problem, which you hadn't realized. And mm-hmm. and you you thought it was all about music, but it wasn't. It was all about your relationship and 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 how both of you just hadn't really seen the other person
0: yeah
1: that way and that that really changes the whole nature of the conflict and how you think about it and also what you think is possible for resolving it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that's that's satyagraha yeah
0: (laughs) yeah I want to bring it back to Gandhi because he, I guess for me, what's interesting about Gandhi is that he really put this into practice quite successfully. And a lot of the challenges that people often pose to pacifism or nonviolent protesting are that you don't get what you want if you don't fight or you don't do it violently. But Gandhi definitely did create a lot of change through his nonviolent approach to this. So I was wondering if you could um, go over some of the specific tactics and strategies that he used to have such a huge effect over, for example, Indian independence.
1: Yeah, but let me just comment about one thing you said. It's, It's not about getting what you want. Uh, it's like, you know, the old Rolling Stone songs. You don't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, mm-hmm. you may find you get what you need. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So it, it's not about getting what you want. It's about getting what you need. Uh, and it applies to Gandhi as well as the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Maybe you're too young to know who the Rolling Stones are, but... <laughs> I, don't,
0: I don't know who they are, don't worry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, they were a great rock group when they're eighty. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the Gandhian approach is is, is to be able to get involved in a fight creatively so that you can change your own idea about what the goal should be. Mm-hmm. Gandhi said that the goal should always be able to change in a in a fight, but the method shouldn't. And the method is a kind of empathetic approach to understanding the perspective of both sides, so you can create a so you can create a goal yeah. that's that's appropriate, getting back to that conflict, yeah. the roommate over the loud music. You know, it, it, it may yeah. be that you end up saying, oh, okay, let's listen to the music together. <laughs> you know, it's, And tell me about yeah. Beethoven. I really don't understand. You know, play a little and explain it to me. So you yeah. may not...
0: That feels like a big shift.
1: You may not get the silence. And
0: getting... And-
1: yeah
0: yeah in in going from making an argument about the goal of the argument versus i guess the process of the argument
1: right you got it right so i've I've, um, I've forgotten your question
0: (laughs) yeah um my question was what were some of the specific tactics that gandhi used tactics that um people
1: now might be able to put into practice. Well, tactics also, again, tactics also change, but, but mm-hmm. the tactics that, that were, that he used in a situation where the other side was overwhelmingly more powerful, that had guns, for example, in police and so forth, uh, was often to have mass protests. A big rallies um, just just recently in Israel, uh, where the prime minister proposed new laws that would really change the nature of the judiciary. Uh, there was the largest protest in Israel's history. You know, tens of thousands of people showed up. You know, some ten percent of the population was out on the streets. And and this protest then had an effect. People people in government positions started resigning from their posts. Uh, soldiers refused to go to <laughs> go to into the military. The airport was shut down. I mean, they created a situation. They didn't have guns. They didn't have they didn't have even a mobilized army. All they had was kind of flash mob. The word going out that uh, you know. We're going to unite and protest against the crazy law that's going to really change the nature of Israeli democracy. And people showed up, and they put showed up in such numbers that the prime minister had to at least temporarily pause his plan to have the uh, uh, this new law taken effect. We'll see whether he continues to do it. Same thing happened in India fairly mm-hmm. recently with the farmers' protest, the largest protest in history. Uh, where Prime Minister Modi had proposed uh, new laws that would then really change most likely the nature of family farming in in the Punjab and Western UP and northern India uh in, in a way that will allow agribusiness to take over a lot of these small plant, uh, farms and maybe make it more economical but really change the nature of society uh and the and the and the independence of Small farmers in, in northern India. So they came out in the streets and they protest, and mm-hmm. they protest in such numbers and such with such vigor and with such uh, continuation that finally you had to back down. So these are examples of very recent examples uh, of the way in which this kind of mass protest, uh, without using weapons, without using violence, uh, can make uh, make a huge difference.
0: Mm-hmm. So would you say maybe, I'm, I'm just in my head, I'm trying to like boil it down to like what made those successful? And I guess like for me, what I'm noticing is uh, consistency is definitely something that is common throughout all of them. Um, and then I guess just about the message that they're putting forward as well.
1: Yeah, and awakening public opinion. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in these cases, one of the points of having this kind of crowd is to, you know, bring it to everybody's attention. You can't ignore it. You know, there's yeah. in, particularly today when we live in an area, a, a time when, you know, we're just bombarded with information. You know, you, you turn on the Internet, it, you just get just zillions of bits of information from every different source possible. And that's mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to break through that huge uh crowd of of information but something like a massive protest is going to do it i mean people will sit up and take notice and they'll say what the devil is going on uh and then if they realize that there is a, a moral argument that's behind this it's not just you know a power grab by people but they are they they feel that there's a principle here at stake that they're representing then the, it, that really presents the whole conflict in a in a different light they understand it in a different way that it has it gives it moral force as well as as uh, the force of numbers and the force of brute force of physical force
0: mm-hmm. so the other thing i wanted to ask is how how gandhi's approach differs from other movements that are more confrontational or aggressive i'm, I'm thinking of a lot of Recent protests, for example, where more violent means were used, and perhaps the the goal of the protest might have been similar to a nonviolent protest, but the, the means in which it was carried out was more aggressive.
1: You know, Gandhi made a distinction between, uh, say, mass movements that are simply movements of force to get your way, and such agraha, which is a a mass movement, but one that is fighting for a principle and a principle that can be negotiated and can be uh, can be changed if people see that this is maybe not as appropriate as they thought. Uh, so it's maybe a subtle difference, but it's a very important one from a Gandhian perspective because the other force, which is Dur- Duragraha in Gandhi's lexicon, he made up that word too. Uh, which is uh, kind of the force of force <laughs> you know the force the force of just brute strength uh that can, can that can easily lead to violence and then if it's led it goes to violence then um then from gandhi's point of view you you've failed to have the conflict i mean the conflict is the conflict has failed <laughs> is what i meant to say that that the idea of a fight which is to try to seek for truth to find a few seek a resolution that's bigger than both of them. You, you've abandoned that with brute force. Now that happened in Gandhi's own experience. There was a uh a, a, a Satyagaha movement that kind of degenerated into, into a fight on a police uh, headquarters and and the firebombing of the headquarters and people being killed. And Gandhi just stopped the whole movement at that point. He said, "This gone too far. This this can't happen. You know, we're, this is." And then he tried to atone for it. This was one of the low points in Gandhi's experience with the Indian independence movement when he saw it collapse into that particular event collapse into violence, because that's then he it's no longer satyagraha It's not. That's you missed the whole point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there there is a big distinction in Gandhi's mind between a movement that's meant to be, uh, you know, try to bring uh, as forcefully as possible to public consciousness the truth as you see it, uh, but not in a way that's so belligerent uh, and stuck that you you can't, that you're inflexible. Uh, you, you can say that Gandhi himself kind of overstepped that line. When he went on a fast, for example, was this, if you go on a fast, that's it's pretty strong pressure, you know. It doesn't seem to allow for as much res- uh, resolution as possible. I mean, I've, You know, I've been a critic of Gandhi, Gandhi's as well as an admirer, but I've, <laughs> I've used Gandhi's own ideas to criticize him <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, he's just a person after all. He's not a god. He's not a saint. It's not mm-hmm. people kind of magnify the image of Gandhi sometimes, but he was definitely a person and he had his failures also.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think his approach to nonviolence can be integrated with any other approaches or philosophies, or is that not
1: possible? Sure. No, it's very much possible um, um, you know, on, on different levels. Just as a method of, of conflict resolution, the Harvard negotiation team, for example, has, has put out a a booklet of conflict resolution on the win-win approach, which is basically the Gandhian approach. Uh, And when, after the Vietnam War, they, one of the the architects of the war was asked, what was the biggest mistake? Now, what would you do over if you were doing the Vietnam War over? And And he said, empathize with the enemy. He said, that's what we failed to do. We failed to see the war from from the North Vietnamese perspective. We just thought that they were extending communism all over the the country and trying to control it. But in their minds, they were continuing an anti-colonial movement to begin with the resistance to the French. And they saw America's as a new colonial power. So if we had understood that, if the US had understood that, they might've dealt with the situation much more differently and not just treat them as, you know, oh, you're trying to impose communism. Well, it was much more complicated than that as we have we seen, because now Vietnam is a very important trading partner and it's, very, it's a great place to go and visit. A lot of Americans go there as tourists. I've gone there as a, mm-hmm. a, a, several times after after the end of the war. And been welcomed warmly by the Vietnamese, uh, but at the time they didn't see that because they didn't empathize with the enemy, and that's.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, those are Gandhi approaches that are shared by people who may have never thought of Gandhi it was to just you know they just have found this approach on their own.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, uh, I ask because, uh, in in the book you mentioned that Gandhi was often criticized for his stubbornness and his unswerving conviction that he was that what he was doing was always right so to be an open book I I'm quite a stubborn person (laughs) how how might someone like me take inspiration from Gandhi when experiencing a conflict that I feel like I'm clearly in the right. And so the other person is clearly in the wrong.
1: Well, I, ideally, from a Ghanaian point of view, you should keep on questioning yourself. Okay. Uh, and especially when you think you're right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's getting back to our story of the, you know, the, the, the two roommates, one is playing the music too loud, the other who just wants some quiet. Well, the person wants some quiet may think this is just nuts. This guy, you know, is dominating my airspace. He has no right to do that. He's simply wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's true to a certain extent. But if you don't understand the perspective of the other person, understand why they're doing it and what they're getting out of it and so forth, why the music is important to them, you're really missing the most of the, the most important part of the conflict. And, and you're also missing an opportunity to resolve in a way that's meaningful to the other, other side. So that's the challenge to say, yeah, when you think you're right, you probably are to some extent, but only to some extent. And that's where we get back to the issue of the angles of vision that nobody has all the truth. That's yeah. the thing to start off with. Nobody's absolutely right, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and if that, let that penetrate your skull, even when you think you're <laughs> absolutely right, I have to admit there are times I've felt I've been absolutely right, and and I've just kind of let my hot headedness, uh, you know, take over. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a very natural hum, human impulse. Yeah. You, you should. You're not alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how how did Gandhi? Um... How did he approach his stubbornness? I guess.
1: Well, and, and also Gandhi was wrong a number of times. I mean, I think Gandhi was too too pig headed on a number of occasions. Uh there's mm-hmm. uh, you know, he he let himself you know, kind of you know take over. He let his sense of moral righteousness take over, which uh, is very ungandian, but nonetheless, you know, as I say, he wasn't perfect, he was a person.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky because if you think that you're right about something and then you don't act on it, it feels wrong. So is the right thing to allow someone else to do the wrong thing, that what you think is the wrong thing, or is it to ask yourself whether you're right about what's the right thing, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I think both things are true. I think, it's, I think it's necessary to keep interrogating yourself about, you know, am I really right? But I think it's also important to act and, and not just to delay. Otherwise you'll be immobilized by self-doubt and well, oh gee, was this really the right? Gandhi's approach was to get involved in a fight and then keep on changing as you go along. But don't be afraid to fight in the first place
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he was very critical of people who are passive he says there's nothing passive about being pacifist <laughs> you know so non-action is is even worse than bad action from his point of view so to be a wimp and not do anything uh if you see injustice or you see something wrong with it because you're Because you're busy interrogating yourself. I mean, you should interrogate yourself, but not so much so that you failed to start doing something about it. Right. You may start doing something about it, like the business with a roommate. You may start off saying, stop, turn off that damn thing. Or you may just go over and turn it off yourself. (laughs) And they'll glower at you. And then you'll say, all right, look, I'm sorry. Maybe I was a little rask. Well, what I need to find out. What what the hell's going on? What what are you? Why are you mm-hmm. doing this? You know. Yeah. Then then now you're getting in the right direction, uh, but don't. But if you just turn it off and say that's it, I'm. You know, or you know, take the radio or whatever it is and throw it out the window. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that's a bit extreme because then you 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 just totally imposed your view of right on the other person. But but there's nothing wrong with expressing what you think is your view of right, uh in order to get but in order to get the ball rolling, and then then maybe you can go from there to get to understand the other person's perspective as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's tricky, it's not not easy. I was thinking about that with the war in Ukraine, you know. And the problem is I, I can I can see to some extent Putin's view, this kind of the moral force and the and the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the, the patriarch of the church is very much behind him in support of what they think is Russian civilization. And if you look at the history of Russia, you can see how important Ukraine was in that history. But you could also <laughs> read that history differently and, and see how from an Ukrainian point of view how Russia has been meddling with Ukraine almost from the beginning, with the Moscovy uh, yeah. uh, you know. You know, so it's a complicated, interesting history, but you, you can kind of see both sides. And uh, I don't see an easy resolution um, other than the, the understanding it certainly helps understand the, the depth of the, of the dilemma. There's no question about that.
0: Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between nonviolence and democracy?
1: You can't have democracy without nonviolence because nonviolence is a way of, of simply enforcing one view of, of what is right over the other and that's it. And as soon as you rob the other side of that ability to, um, to speak to speak forcefully and, and to have its, its concerns the will of the of the people uh, made public and 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 to promote it, if if you forestall that in some way, then you've really, there is no democracy. And that was the issue in Israel with those protests. They saw that, well, if you get rid of the independent judiciary in Israel, you really don't have any kind of break over the power of the prime minister and his political control over the, over the Knesset or the parliament in Israel. So that's why so many people showed up. They were they were fighting for democracy.
0: Right.
1: So if once that begins to erode, then you have what is called an autocratic electorate. I mean, you may have the the idea of an election, but the elections don't mean very much. As say Russia, for example, where Putin has really become a kind of dictator. Even mm-hmm. though they have elections, the elections don't count for much because anybody who wants to run against, he throws them into jail <laughs> or silences <laughs> them, taking over the media so that you can't have opposition newspapers or opposition radio or television. So if, if that didn't exist, I mean, y- you can pick up your microphone, you can have a podcast, and you could talk about anything you want to, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: What if you couldn't? What, what they say, well, there's a limit on what you're allowed to talk about on your podcast. And maybe there's a limit on who's allowed to actually make podcasts.
0: Mm.
1: Well, you, you see the problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, it's tricky.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the ideas uh, discussed in your book is self sacrifice for a greater cause. Is this always necessary for a successful nonviolent conflict resolution. Are there exceptions?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think where I talk about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't certainly don't advocate you know sacrificing yourself needlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I'm just I mean, thinking are there are there cases in which certain aspects of an argument are so non-negotiable that the self-sacrifice is just not is just out of the question basically
1: well let me find a different way of talking about it self-sacrifice, and, and quite frankly, I, just, I don't even remember using that phrase. <laughs> I don't even know where, but it, it has, it's in a context, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And, and the context would be uh, having the ability, we were already talking about that, have the ability of, at least for the moment, putting in your own perspective second and trying to see the perspective from the other side's point of view. And that yeah. requires a certain amount of self-discipline and a certain amount of modesty about who's right and and so and it may also involve a certain amount of danger if you're in a conflict where the other side has weapons and so forth, and you don't, then you may be in a situation that you are putting yourself in harm's way. Uh, you don't have weapons, you're just standing up for what is right. And that could be a matter of self-sacrifice. you could you could be you could lose your life. And, and his when he was recruiting for such agraha, he said, you have to be, I want people who are like soldiers for an army are recruited with the ability to kill and knowing that they might kill. I want to recruit. For people who know that they might die, that they might be in a situation where a a conflict with a forceful opposition and a nonviolent conflict might lead to your own death. You don't seek it, you're not trying to do that. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's not the point of it. (laughs) But it requires that that kind of bravery. And I'm thinking of, you know, there's a famous picture from uh, the Tina Men. Revolution that this is a couple decades ago you you wouldn't remember it but it in China uh where there was a big protest movement in in China against uh the authoritarianism of the Chinese government and they wanted more liberal Democratic goals and mostly young people camped down at Tiananmen Square there's one moment where the government sent in tanks to try to try to take you about. Pro- <laughs> yeah, yeah you, we've probably seen the picture it's a very famous yeah. picture the so there's, over. there's this one guy who walks out in the middle of the street in front of this line of tanks and just stands there in front of the line of tanks. He's got like a briefcase in his hand. I don't know if he's going to work. And he saw this tank. I want to stop him. And the tanks stop. And, and the guy, because the guy who's running this tank doesn't want to squish this guy. <laughs> so he stops and he moves the tank over a little bit of one side. And the guy was standing in the road, he goes <laughs> and he tippy toes over in front of the tank well, in that direction. So that, so there's a standoff between this one guy and a whole line of tanks that goes on for quite a few minutes until finally somebody from the side runs in and grabs this guy and pulls him away. <laughs> he says, What are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> They're gonna be squished by these tanks. But that picture. It was on CNN, and the, which they're filming the whole thing. And there was also a, a still picture that's now used in posters, you know, mm-hmm. often with one person can stand up against the forces of evil. Well, they can. But what if the tank said, "Well, to hell with you! My instructions is to proceed regardless," and they just went ahead and squished him like a bug? Uh, well, you, you wouldn't have that picture, uh, and he would have. Been very brave, maybe foolish in this case. But at least he, he would have stood up for what he believed, uh, even in the face of of a, a huge uh, opposition. Now the hope is that it won't come to that. Uh, but th- there's a famous scene in uh, the movie of Gandhi that showed uh, the, the the salt satyagraha, uh, and this was. A, a particular moment in the independence movement in India when the struggle was focused on the, the British uh, making salt and then selling it back to the Indians. It, the British had a habit of, of taking like the raw material, cotton from India, shipping it to Britain, making it textiles and send it back to India. India actually had been a textile powerhouse before the, the British colonialism. But all that was destroyed by the British because they wanted to make the textiles and to sell it back to the Indians. Well, basically, you're doing the same thing with salt. And so just like with the textiles, Gandhi said, hey, we can make our clothes ourselves. We don't need these British clothes. So he started a whole industry of khadi, which is making, you know, homespun clothes. And the spinning wheel then became a symbol of, you know, of independence. And so he did this, tried to do the same thing with salt, saying, look, we can, anybody can go down to the ocean and, and." you know, dry out the salt water and, and purify it and make salt. We don't need the British to do that. So he, he went on a march to the sea. Uh, and as as he marched from his home in, in the state of Gujarat down to the ocean, he picked up more and more followers. This very famous march in India's independence movement. When you fly into Delhi in the airport, then you drive into the city. There's one roundabout where there's a huge sculpture showing the salt march with Gandhi at the head of it. It's really, it's an iconic symbol of independence. But in the movie Gandhi, uh, which won the Academy Award when it was presented, there's this, it shows that they, they would stay, the whole line of people and then the the British soldiers came to oppose them and their whole line of them and they would beat one over the head and he would fall and another would come and they would beat him over the head and he would fall. And that's often uh, used as an example of the kind of Gandhian courage, being willing to stand up, even if you know you're going to be beaten over the head.
2: Um what whether
1: you- it happened or not, by the way, it's interesting that it was only recorded by one guy, a New York Times correspondent who was there.
2: Yeah.
1: And some historians claim it never happened. And Gandhi would, would. this was not what self sacrifice means to willingly, like the guy with the tank, Willingly put you in a way, but you might be in a way and you, your bravery uh, requires that you recognize that that might be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you develop that kind of bravery in your own life when you're not necessarily always put in these situations that are very extreme?
1: Well, I think the situation brings it out in you. I don't think that any way you. I think you're absolutely right. You do, you can't it's kind of sitting in your house and think. Oh, I'm going to be a very brave person. <laughs> uh, yeah. you, you don't you don't know that until it out. It it, it actually happens. You know mm-hmm. there. Um, there was a, a mass shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, in a school, um, not too long ago, and <clears throat> and you know the previously there had been a mass shooting in Uvalde Texas where the police came in and they were afraid of the weapon because the shooter had an AR15 which is just a horrible weapon it's a military weapon it can just put holes in people um so they were the police there were like 400 of them they were afraid to go in because they didn't want to be shot up by this guy so for over an hour they just stood around until finally somebody had the courage to actually storm into the room and, and get the killer. Well, in Nashville, Tennessee, this recently, the there were two cops uh, that, that were called in. And they, as soon as they received the information about where the shooter is, they ran in. You can see the body cam footage of them running, running into the halls and, and running from door to door trying to find the guy. And they, they, they heard where he was. They ran up there and they didn't waste a minute. They just burst right in and then they got him. Or her in this case, uh, and uh, and nobody else was killed. I mean, there were a couple, three kids and three teachers were were killed. It was a horrible situation, but it wasn't the big mass massacre that it was in Uvalde, Texas. And everybody's praising the the bravery of these these policemen. And so uh, last night, I was watching an interview, and they asked him, you know, where'd you get this bravery? He said. I don't know. <laughs> you know it, it just happened, you know. When I got there, I knew what was going on. This is what I had to do. So I, I think I think that's the answer to your question. It's a reflex yeah. answer to a situation. When you have to do something, you have to do it.
0: Yeah, I wonder if thinking too hard about such certain situations is what is actually the enemy of bravery. In some ways.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is what happened in Evaldi, Texas. They're about to go in. there's said, like, "Oops, wait a second. <laughs> Let's think about Wait, what this. are we doing? <laughs> yeah, what are we doing? Does you know what kind of gun he has? Oh, really? Oh, no. We're not going to do that. Are you got your mind? <laughs> you know, you can see the conversation that was going on. And the more they, you know, kind of talked about it, say, "Oh, you know, really terrible what's going on in there." But you know, do you really want to get killed over this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but mm-hmm. in Nashville, Tennessee, he didn't give himself time to think about that.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: just said, that "They're shooting on their kids; they're danger. We gotta go in."
0: Yeah.
1: And then, yeah. Now, fortunately, fortunately, they weren't. So the police were not killed. They, I mean, they were able to surprise the the shooter and and uh, and and get her before she killed more people, but um and they weren't shot they could have been they could mm-hmm. have been a different story yeah but they but they weren't I mean it was a they it was a case of where acting was more important and powerful than the kind of reason everything through
0: yeah yeah I, I think that's that's actually very ap- applicable I think to at least for me, because I feel like I overthink a lot of things, and sometimes it's just better to do less thinking.
1: Um, yeah, and, and Gandhi yeah. says sometimes it's better to have a little bit of violence than than let let uh, let violence go on unchecked. I mean, remember, mm-hmm. I think of Gandhi as a total pacifist, but he gave a couple examples of where you should move in, even if it involves violence. It, it, one was a, a an example of a of a shooter, or a sniper. That's you know killing people, and you've got to go up. You've got to stop them, and even if that involves a force that might kill a person,
2: yeah.
1: you try not to kill him. But if there's no other way to keep it from happening, you you've got to do something. Yeah. So he he was always for action. <laughs> not, action. He said was worse than then bad action, uh, it, it's worse to be passive and not act at all. So even if yeah. it's, even if you, you know you, you have to later, you might want to check what you did, but at the time you got to you got to do something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the final question I have for the quick fire questions um, is how readers, what readers can take away from the book, and how they can apply all of these principles of nonviolence into their own lives. And I know we've kind of like answered it a little bit along the way here and there, but I was wondering if you can just like sum it up in a, one answer. It's
1: not complicated. <laughs> it, 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 it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's mm-hmm. a, look as conflict as an opportunity to grow, to change and to try to understand the perspective of the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also not give up your own principles in the process. And to realize that you never ever resolve conflict. You live in a world of conflict. You always, there's always something to have to work out with your partner or even your your spouse or your family, or even people you think you absolutely agree with in every way, there are always differences because everybody's different. Mm-hmm. Because everyone is different. They're going to have to find a way to get along. And that's what Sachra is ultimately about.
0: Yeah. Cool. Uh, mm-hmm. well, would you like to go on to the quick fire questions now? I have been tweaking them a little bit and trying to see which ones work best. So you can let me know what you think. The first one is if you live to be 200, what is one thing you would do differently?
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't think I would do much different thus far in my life. I mean, there, you know, I'm an academic, and often I think, well, if I've been more of a, a social activist, if I actually not only written about things, and but I, I've tried to contribute in my own way towards books on conflict resolution and, on, and on, uh, on, on terrorism and to try to understand the perspective of, of terrorists. In a sense, I've tried to use Gandhi's approach in my own, uh, my own research, uh, in my own method, for example, of trying to do a sociological analysis of terrorist movements, is to get in the mind of other people, to try to get inside their way, way of thinking. And that requires going and talking with them. So all of my my books are based on interaction with people going out and having conversations and trying to see the world from their perspective, which Mm -hmm. doesn't mean I end up agreeing with them. I certainly disagree with their nonviolence. I'm a a kind of Gandhian uh, pacifist, which means that I make some exceptions in rare instances, but in most cases, the violence is antithetical to a conflict resolution and therefore Mm -hmm. should be avoided. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I do the same thing. I just do yeah. more of it.
0: <laughs> what is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk?
1: Well, the biggest misconception of Gandhi's pacifism is that he was passive. He certainly wasn't, he was, he was active. Uh, and And that it's complicated, it's not. It's very simple and very straightforward. The mm-hmm. uh, biggest under, understanding about my work on religious terrorism is that people think that the word religious violence means that I think that religion causes violence. I don't mean that at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just means violence is associated in some way with religion, where religion provides uh, images of a conflict war, a cosmic war, provides the leadership or the motivations, or, uh, but doesn't cause it. Uh, what causes violence is a whole complicated set of political social economic issues that make people unhappy and they want to want to fight over it uh mm. and that's that's almost never about theology or religious beliefs <laughs> there you know when isis or or al qaeda you know is is attacking america it's not that they're trying to convert christians into islam that's not the point they they, yeah. they think that americans are have been dominating Muslim countries and trying to control it. And they they want to be free and independent. The irony is that, that our struggles against them, we think are struggles for freedom and they think their struggles against us are struggles for freedom. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you, you know, it's understanding that is, is helpful. It doesn't mean they're right, but it helps us understand the perspective. Yeah.
0: What's the worst advice you've been given?
1: What's the worst what? Worst advice? Oh, <laughs> I think worst advice was when I was a graduate student and I was interested in religion and politics and then my advisor said, you should drop this religion thing because there's no <laughs> religion and politics. <laughs> and now and today where the religion and violence will be interacting in so many different ways, it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. That same department of political science that I was in as a graduate student at Berkeley now has uh, uh, professor who was appointed specifically to teach religion and politics.
0: <laughs> what is the most underrated spiritual teaching you've come across?
2: Underrated?
1: Oh, our meditation.
2: Mm.
1: And prayer is a form of meditation. Um, they're both ways of, of trying to articulate really to yourself, you know, um, resources within yourself for dealing with life and dealing with adversity and dealing with difficulty in a way that calms and and uh, in some ways uh, reverses those fears.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, the last one is, Claire Booth Luce once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence?
1: (laughs) What's my sentence? Um, To live life fully and to think boldly. I like it. All right.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciated that. The time really flew.
1: It's been fun talking with you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you made it to the end, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found that conversation as interesting and useful as I did, maybe for your own personal conflict resolution, or maybe just for thinking about social justice issues. If you would like to reach out to Mark Jurgensmeyer, I will leave his contact information in the show notes, as well as a link to the Sustainable Spirit Podcast page, where you can make requests, ask questions, or just say hi. With that said, that's a wrap for Episode 3 of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. I will look forward to seeing you next time.